Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. One of the first academics I met who totally awed me was Marilyn Young, a longtime NYU professor and a mentor really to thousands of scholars of American foreign relations. Her research on Vietnam, China, and U.S. empire, human rights, and war transformed the way we think about the 20th century world and our own time in the 21st century. And what Professor Young encouraged in our profession was the extension of our analysis. While the male-dominated academy of her time had focused on the politics and macroeconomics of empire, Marilyn urged us to think about religion, gender, race, culture, and transnational connections that could provide a fuller, holistic portrayal of the past. And the best scholarship aims to do this multifaceted and complex history. Today's guest, Dr. Chris Sa, has produced one of these rich histories of Asian-American relations that covers the early decades of the 20th century, the period that Marilyn had covered in her early scholarship. And his book is called The Allure of Empire, American Encounters with Asians in the Age of Trans-Pacific Expansion and Exclusion. It explains how the U.S. and Japan built an imperial order before World War I and how that lasted until World War II. To accomplish this, Chris explores the racial dynamics of geopolitics, and while some scholars like Eric Love have put, have put race over empire, Chris puts empire over race to show how imperialism could contain progressive and anti-progressive notions. He explains where those ideas come from, how they were shaped by the people of the time, and the global implications of them. Asian American relations naturally had an effect on the United States, and Pacific states like Japan, China, and Korea. And Chris's book takes us to places in in the Pacific, as well as to Cuba, Britain, France, and Africa. Professor Chris uh, comes to us from Atlanta, Georgia. He teaches history at Emory University, and he has published several articles on U.S.-Asian relations in the 20th century. The Allure of Empire is his first book, and it's an impressive one. I'm pleased to welcome to the show. It's great to speak with you, Chris. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, I love I love your book. Let me just start with that first and foremost. And my favorite thing about it is that somehow it captures the complexity of transatlantic relations in the early 20th century in a way that is polyphonic. I was thinking about ringtones for some reason when I read this. You know, there's the original ringtone, which is that monophonic sort of sound, and then there's the polyphonic, you know, the 
multiple voices, multiple angles, multiple perspectives in this book. And so I thought I'd open with a broad question about Japan's rise as an empire. And what did that mean for geopolitics? Yeah, thank you. I mean, that was exactly what I was going for in terms of giving different historical figures, different, you know, all the voices, but also trying to uh, tell this story from different angles. So in terms of you know what it you know the 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 rise of Japan as an imperial power. What it means, at least at the turn of the twentieth century, is that it's in some in a lot of ways unprecedented in the lifetime of a lot of the people who are living uh, at that time. So uh, it hasn't it has been a quite a bit of a long time since, for example, American imperialists or British imperialists has seen a non-white empire be able to. Um, defeat militarily a white empire. So this is what happens during the Russo-Japanese War. And this also means a great deal to people like, for example, W.A.B. Du Bois, uh, with whom I opened the book, uh, who are really excited that for the first time in his lifetime, uh, that there's a non-white power that is able to perhaps start thinking about challenging white supremacy in a very significant way. Um, but this also means within Asia, uh, something new is happening. Uh, what, what, and, and from the perspective, let's say Koreans, Chinese, uh, Filipinos, uh, Japan is also an empire that is not white, but nevertheless an empire. So instead of the usual way that in the 19th century, uh, people have been thinking about empires as white powers, European powers, right? Um, and American power that rose pretty late uh, in, the, in the late 19th century. They now see actually uh, an Asian power who's supposed to be one of them, um, expanding, colonizing, uh, and and in a lot of ways uh, doing exactly what the white powers have been doing. So it's a, it's a so the Russo-Japanese War, um, as I say in my book, provides a really important turning point in this history, and that's that sets the stage for the drama that follows throughout the book. Absolutely, and one of the things that you mentioned about race is the way that Japan reshape the idea of race itself, but also what I was interested in is how it reshaped the idea of whiteness. I mean, and how does that complicate the global order that it's no longer, well, there's at least one other player in the field that is not white. What does that do to the idea of whiteness in this period? Yeah, that's a great question uh, because um, what the Russo-Japanese war shows also is that uh, a white power is not necessarily the better power or more civilized power. And Russia's performance in the war itself uh, reveals to people like Theodore Roosevelt uh, and even some people like William James Bryan, who's opposed to Roosevelt, that maybe what makes certain group of people or certain nations or an empire great is not necessarily what color of their race is, but, but actually uh, their performance, their ability, to you know, defeat people in the battle. And more importantly, because this is the progressive era, be able to be an empire that is um, able to quote unquote uplift or quote unquote civilize uh, other people uh, in, in, the, in, 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 in its vicinity. And during this time, um, American imperialists are not only comparing uh, Japan with Russia, but also empires like or, or you know, European powers like Belgium. So I, I, here I can I can build off your work, your first book, where um, King Leopold II, Belgian monarch King Leopold II's Congo Free State, 
was seen as the example of what an empire should not do uh, because it is all empires are violent and exploitive, but this one is extraordinarily violent and exploitive. And Japan is showing that it is an empire that is anything but like the the what the you know what the Belgians have built in Africa. Uh, so this is actually where ideas about whiteness is being challenged too. And there's going to be a hierarchy within the white races among the white races and people you know, coming as far as a top as Roosevelt and all the way down to some of the, you know, um, political activists in, in California begin to realize that, well, Japan actually, even though it's not white, might be um, higher on the racial hierarchy than many of the white powers, including some of the imperial powers like Russia uh, and, and Belgium. Um, so that's how it challenges ideas about whiteness as well. And this is something that I think plays a really important part uh, um, throughout the throughout the progressive era, as the United States is grappling with what to do with Japanese immigration, what to do with uh, Japanese uh, uh, military navy, um, how to start thinking about collaboration with the non-white power rather than trying to build a world that is run by all white powers. I think that's great, and I think that gives us an idea of how important empire is as a defining characteristic of the time and how it created racial hierarchies sometimes the not the other way around which has been the historiography that race or race hierarchies created the idea of what empires were viable um i i wanted to to kind of jump way ahead because obviously the book covers the first 40 years <clears throat> but you know your your book ends naturally with world war ii because it's at that stage when the united states is thinking well you know, maybe Japan isn't like us, right? Maybe they don't have that same civilizing mission, or at least not in the same way. And there, there have been in the historiography, there have been some scholars that have suggested that the Russo-Japanese War, Roosevelt's foreign policy, Theodore Roosevelt's foreign policy, actually leads to World War II. And when I read in your book that Rose, Theodore Roosevelt met Sigmund Rhee in 1905, I mean, that did seem to connect the dots in a sort of way for me, at least because Roosevelt and successive administrations to chastise the Japanese for violence in Korea. But you have your own take on this, and I want I want you to explain that sort of wide 40 years of history, how we get from point A to point B. Yeah, and, and my my short answer to that is that when we get to the, the early 1940s, uh, even before Pearl Harbor, um, I think a lot of American uh, politicians as well as historians are beginning to tell a story that would disavow uh, a, a very important aspect of Theodore Roosevelt diplomacy, which was very much collaborative, uh, which was actually establishing this collaborative framework uh, with Japan to co-govern the Pacific and also Britain is an important partner here as well. And the reason why the selective memory uh, become so useful in the early 40s is that unlike, let's say, in 1904, 1905, um, Japan's record as an imperial power uh, it, it has been tainted by decades of violence, but also because of what's happening during the Sino-Japanese War, uh, basically live, uh, as Americans are thinking about what happened here. And it is true that Theodore Roosevelt was, you know, he was not 100% uh, in love with Japan. He was not 100% trusting of Japan, even when he set up this collaborative framework. 
But what happens in the in the 1940s is that uh, people begin to selectively say, okay, well, you know, we can actually see the seed of anti-Japanese sentiment, fear of Japanese military, fear of Japanese immigrants um, already during uh, Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. So what Franklin Roosevelt does in 1940s and in some ways uh, can be seen as an extension. But it's it's seen as an extension only because we have uh, written out the other part of this story. And that's actually the other part that I try to bring in. And it's not just Franklin Roosevelt who's participating in this uh, mode of Celtic memory. It's also um, W.B. Du Bois, as I explained, when he writes about the causes of uh, the Pacific theater uh, of World War II, he specifically points out that uh, there's been a consistent way in the United States and other white powers have been disrespecting Japan. Uh, and it, it already began in 1905, but it really uh, was crucial in 1924 when the United States uh, ex- you know, prohibited Japanese immigration. So this had been brewing. That's, that's, that's what his take is. But this is all, I think, uh, a, a facile explanation of how history works but if you look at the primary sources the historical documents that precede the 1940s you see something far more complicated and in some ways um just challenging what what happened uh during the 1940s and how people thought about the 1940s because it's true i mean people have short memory uh, people often trust the history textbooks that they read and even those who have lived through that four decades uh many of them begin to change their minds and say, well, maybe that collaborative framework was never meant to last. So uh, what mattered about Theodore Roosevelt, it turned out, was actually this skepticism and fear of Japanese uh, empire, uh, as opposed to the other part. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And what I love about that is that you are not taking away the agency of successive generations of diplomats and peoples that live in places like Korea, which your book does so well of inserting into the story our Korean voices. You mentioned Yuen Chi Ho, and you've written about him before. And there's a connection with him to Emory, because, well, where you are today, uh, because he, he went to Emory more than a century ago. Well, so about Yuen Chi Ho, and also what about others that helped shape the American relationship in the Far East? Who are they? And, and, and tell us a little bit about them. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll sort of select three figures based on the three different in uh, perspective they bring. So Yun Chi Ho, who, as you mentioned, uh, was a Korean reformer educated in the United States and of all places in the American South in the 1880s and 1890s. So he grew up, he grew up in Korea, uh, entered into the missionary circles um, by going to a, a, a school that was run by an Emory alum in Shanghai. And it was through that connection that he ended up at Vanderbilt and Emory. And he learned a lot about race relations in the Jim Crow South. And when he becomes a diplomat in Korea, uh, and he's, he goes as far uh, as a, 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 he goes really far up in, uh, in the chain of command. And he's uh, vice minister of foreign affairs and oftentimes the acting minister of foreign affairs. So he's literally number two or number one uh, in terms of Korean, foreign relations during the Russo-Japanese War. And his perspective is that um, the United States and Japan recognize each other as partners precisely because they have a proven that they have the military might to take on, let's say, Russia or other powers and, and, and to prove that they're very strong. But most importantly to him, these are empires even without you know looking outside, but even domestically speaking, within Japan, within the within continental United States, have spent a lot of time uh, focusing on what we call progressive reform, domestic reform. So, um, like building schools, fighting political corruption, uh, limiting the power of company uh, industrialists, uh, making sure that um, people have more democratic ways of selecting their um, political representatives. And all these things are important to him uh, at this particular moment uh, in the early 20th century in Korea because the Korean monarchy, uh, in his perspective, is anything but doing what he thinks that a government should do. So he basically thinks that the Korean government, Korean monarch, monarch is anti-progressive. He's not, he's not even unprogressive, but anti-progressive. And Yoon himself actually uh, has personal history with the monarch because Yoon tried uh, very hard at the end of the 19th century to create a constitutional monarchy uh, by allowing people to participate uh, in selection of people who will be in the Privy Council to kind of uh, restrain the power of the monarch. But he was actually, his, his attempt failed and he's actually exiled and he's brought back to the imperial government right at the beginning of the Russo-Japanese war to clean up the mess of his predecessors, essentially. So that's the perspective that he brings in. And he that's actually why he believes that the Korean monarchy current government is unfit to uh, uh, lead the Korean people. And this is a really controversial perspective. But in his perspective, he thinks that um, if Japan can do the job of making 
the lives of everyday Koreans better, then then you know then that's that should be the way that God as God intended. He's very religious, so that's one perspective I'm bringing. Second perspective I want to bring in is that uh, the the U.S. diplomats. Um, Horace Allen is a really big name in the in the Korean studies field. He's a little less known in the U.S. diplomatic field, precisely because he's a he's a quite an unusual figure. So unlike most of his uh, contemporary ministers, um, who were let's say children of these well connected individuals, so a lot of uh, a lot of diplomats were chill, uh, were actually Harvard, Yale, uh, Princeton educated people who were personal friends with you know Theodore Roosevelt and others. But Horace Allen is actually one of these uh, people who. He's from, I think he was, he's from Ohio. He was originally a missionary and he rises from the bottom to the top of the uh, U.S. mission to Korea. Um, and he becomes U.S. minister um, who, who plays a really important role in, in, in maintaining U.S.-Korea relations. And he's a personal friend of Yoon Chi-ho's as well. And his take is interesting uh, because on one hand, he has established good relations with Koreans, especially Korean elites, but also with the Korean monarch. And he is a really good business person too. So he's able to profit off the relationship between US and Korea uh, by becoming a broker for, uh, on one hand, uh, US companies that are trying to break into the Korean market, uh, US companies that are trying to build utilities, com utility companies, build railroads uh, in Korea. On the other hand, he's the broker who makes possible the first wave of Korean migration to the United States, to, to Hawaii uh, as laborers. And he is a person who, uh, on one hand, is a friend of Korea, but also very much part of the U.S. imperial expansion. And he makes U.S. imperial expansion into Korea possible without, uh, let's say, um, claiming sovereignty of Koreans. And he brings a different perspective there. The third person I want to bring who, who had basically no experience in Korea until he went to Korea uh, during the Russo-Japanese War is a guy named George Kennan. And he actually is the namesake say, cousin of the better known George F. Kennan. And George F. Kennan became uh, a Russianist precisely because George Kennan was a Russianist. And he worked as a journalist. He, he, he covered the Spanish-American War in Cuba. And then he went to Korea to cover the Russo-Japanese War. And he does what I call muckraking abroad, which is that he, he actually allows a lot of American readers, including Theodore Roosevelt, including people uh, in policymaking circles, as well as a lot of public intellectuals to understand Korea as a, as a government or so not, not his, his criticism is actually not necessarily Korea, the country or Korean people. It's actually by the Korean government that seems unable to do progressive things. So he is a big supporter of Japanese uh, imperialism. On the other hand, and I'll, I'll stop, I'll stop talking about these three characters after this. What's interesting is that he does become critical of the U.S. support of Japanese empire a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Precisely, he thinks, because he thinks that while the Japanese elites are really good imperialists, the Japanese working class are terrible sort of uh, settler colonialists who do not have any intention of helping the Korean government uh, become more progressive. Rather, these are just uh, straight-up exploitive settlers who are there to make money and perhaps even uh, dispossess Korean people of their land. So he's actually quite critical of Theodore Roosevelt's support towards the end. 
even as he is on one hand um, an imperialist, a progressive imperialist, I should say. So these are the three figures who I think kind of show um, how people in Korea are also shaping U.S. imperialism in different ways. Well, and we always hear in most textbooks, not just textbooks, I should say, but monographs as well, like James Bradley's The Imperial Cruise, that it was just Theodore Roosevelt and maybe William Howard Taft, and they gave Korea away to Japan. But there are Koreans uh, like Yun that you mentioned that are, you know, that are welcoming Japan in as, you know, a, a force for, um, you know, on balance, good for the Koreans. So I think that's that's the co-creation of empire really is at the heart of your book. And it's it's also the promise of transnational scholarship. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the 1907 Gentlemen's Agreement, which is for listeners, in case they don't know, it's an agreement between Japan and the United States on immigration restrictions. Uh, but this would come to shape the inter-imperial arrangement between the United States and Japan in the first two decades of the, the 20th century. So this plays an important role in your book for that story of co-creation of empire. How does it work? So the gentleman's agreement, the easiest way to think about it is that it is a mutual agreement between the government of the United States and the government of Japan to restrict, but not prohibit, uh, uh, a migration of Japanese people to the United States. And often in, in existing historiography, people have called this Japanese exclusion. Some scholars have called this Japanese exclusion, which if you, if you think about it, it makes you wonder, well, then if 1907 was Japanese exclusion, if the gentleman's agreement was Japanese exclusion, then what did 1924 do, right? So the, 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 what I try to explain over the course of two chapters in this book is that, well, there's a reason why the nativists, the anti-immigration activists, especially in California, but also in the state of Washington um, and Oregon, other places are really, really unhappy that the United States government has entered into this mutual agreement of restriction rather than passing uh, an act of Congress like the Chinese exclusion laws and later the immigration of 1917, who creates this uh, large zone called the Asiatic Barge Zone that was primarily aimed at uh, aimed at South Asians coming from British colonies. So why does Japan get special treatment is their question. And the answer that the policymakers in Washington, and this is the executive branch, but also in the legislative branch, have from 1907 all the way through the early 1920s is that, well, Japan is a different power than the rest of Asia. Japan is, unlike, let's say, Korea uh, or India, is not a colony. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a colonizing power. Now, China has not been colonized, but its sovereignty has been very much been compromised by various arrangements within uh, the European and American powers, as well as Japan. And unlike the Qing Empire, which is also an empire, um, the United States believes that Japan is an empire that is very good at playing the international game in collaborating with uh, the United States and Britain in particular as they uh, try to maintain peace. So the Gentleman's Agreement is a piece of agreement that allows a select few of Japanese immigrants to come to the U.S. legally. And one of the most important pieces of it is that although it prohibits the migration of working class Japanese immigrants and the Japanese government actually will take care of this by refusing to issue passports to those people, the Japanese working class already in the United States can bring wives uh, from Japan who have entered into arranged marriages 
uh, through by exchanging pictures and letters, or they're called picture brides. And the United States government is okay with this because they think that, well, Japanese bachelors uh, in the American West, A, probably it's better for them to have Japanese women than maybe cross the color line and, and cause all these problems with, uh, with interracial relationship, interracial marriage. B, um, because they're seen as people who are diligent and people who are hardworking, people who are actually making a lot of money, uh, way higher than most European immigrants at this time, that they're seen as people who are good enough to be patriarchs of their families. There is a lot of support for uh, picture brides, and it's not until 1921 that the United States government actually stops the picture bride practice with Japan. And it's only in 1924 that we see truly the United States government side with these anti-Japanese immigration activists in California uh, and pass it elect, or, or, or include in the comprehensive immigration after 1924 a provision that would prohibit Japanese immigrants. And the book tells this long struggle that the racist natives have against uh, uh, people in Congress and people in the White House both in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, uh, and, and how long it takes for them to get their victory. So that's the, this is why um, I think that my book also makes a huge intervention in the field of immigration history as well, in addition to uh, diplomatic history. Absolutely. I mean, Erica Lee's work has talked about that sort of opposition to Asian populations along the West Coast, not just the United States, but Canada as well. And your book does a, a just a super job of explaining why this goes on until really the 1920s. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the war as well and how the war changes the inter-imperial relationship between the two governments, particularly not after the war, not the treaty, but how does the war itself and the security arrangements, the geopolitical security arrangements with Britain as well, how does that transform the relationship between the United States and Japan? Yeah, thanks for the question. So because um... Japan actually is an ally of the United States and Britain during World War One. Unlike in World War Two, um, there is a concerted effort, not only from the federal government of the United States, but also surprisingly, the state government of California, to start maybe uh, stop this wave of anti-Japanese imperialism. Um, and and I actually explained that that this this in some ways the war represents a pause rather than the end of anti-Japanese immigration movement in California. Nevertheless, it's really really important to note that this is a significant period where, um, because of the war in Europe and in the Atlantic, and because I don't write too much about this, I maybe I have a sentence about this because sub submarine warfare in the Atlantic, uh, the the trade with Asia becomes far more important. Uh, and in fact, one of the charts that got cut out from my book was showing how the, the, the U.S. trade with China and Japan really, really benefits from World War I. Um, it's actually the first time that the open door policy actually even begins to show some uh, fruits of the labor um, because all of a sudden, the America, a lot of American industrialists, cotton exporters realize that, well, if we can sell to the European market, maybe we can sell to the Asian market and Japan and China are the one and two. And this also creates, I think, uh, an incentive for the U.S. government as well as Japanese government to think about really doing a lot of work 
to maintain this what I call the inter-imperial relationship across the color line um, during the during World War One, and it gets maintained throughout um, war. And this is in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that Japan does actually begin to violate the open door policy a little bit. And I'm mentioning this because you have co-written a book about open door policy, uh, and, and it's about the implementation too. Uh, because Japan, uh, rather Japanese foreign ministry, uh, uses the opportunity of uh, World War One to expand their footprints in China as well. So the most infamous one is the so-called the the, uh, the, the 15-bit demands that the foreign ministry makes uh, to China, which in, in effect basically would make Japan, China uh, a protector of, of Japan um, in the way that Korea was from 1905 to 1910. Another thing uh, that Japan does is that they're very opportunistic. So they take over um, the former German concession uh, in, in, in Shandong um, and refuses to later, and this becomes a problem in the Paris Peace Conference, they refuse to uh, give that land and the rights back to the China, Republican China, and in in violation in some ways of, of the open door policy. And I bring this, I bring this up because there have been a lot of great works that focus on, for example, like uh, you know, US Japan competition over uh, the China market. But what's what's remarkable if you look at uh, the, the overall record of the to to the bi bi binational bi imperial relationship is that throughout World War One they do the, the at least at least the elites on on both sides really do a tremendous job of making sure that these tensions are managed well to maintain peace. Um, so that's something that I emphasize in the book. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point that you make in the book, and I'm glad you 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 told us about it here. I, I, let me turn a little bit to some of the sort of um, domestic politics within foreign policies, or at least how, you know, we know that domestic politics often shapes foreign policies. And because your book takes part in, in the Gilded Age and progressive era, that progressive element features pretty heavily as well. And I wanted you to explain how the story of progressive reform is different in places like Korea and the Philippines, you know, where you've got Japan as a colonizing power in Korea, and you've got the United States as a colonizing power in, in the Philippines. How does the progressive values that they're both espousing, how does it play out differently? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So, um, and here I'm building on a lot of great works that have already explained how American progressivism, uh, domestic or abroad, have shaped American imperialism in the Philippines. And, and um, on one hand, there are both similarities and differences between the Korea and Philippine cases. And I think the easiest way to think about what's happening uh, during this period is that both American imperialists and Japanese imperialists acknowledge that they're, they themselves are experimenting with different ways of reforming these colonies to uh, become more like the continental United States or uh, mainland Japan when it comes to, for example, um, creating, an, creating a state that is providing welfare for the working class, protecting women and children, building schools, uh, allowing limited political participation. Um, and all these things are happening uh, in different ways in both Korea and the Philippines. What is different, and this is something that 
I think, makes people like Yun Shiho, the Korean figure I mentioned, really resentful of Japanese propaganda, is that because of the strong influence of anti-imperialists in the United States, William Jennings Bryan, who you've written about, and others, so much of the mission of the U.S. imperialism in the Philippines is about eventually giving the Filipinos the right to self-government. In other words, there's always supposed to be an endpoint of this uh, of colonial rule. And in an interesting way, as we know from, from the history, in the 1930s, the United States does set the timeline uh, somewhat voluntarily uh, to, to uh, make the Philippines more self-governing. In Korea, that's not the case, really. I mean, even though Japan is doing all these works of reform, um, and Japan has not promised Koreans that they will be self-governing by the end of their colonial period. In fact, there's really no end in sight for most of the colonial period. And in spite of the difference like this, there is a way in which that, and I'll switch over to thinking about a group of people who I haven't yet talked about in this podcast yet, who are academics. So these are people who are seen as the experts of international relations, uh, the experts of what a field, it's a field that doesn't exist anymore called race development. What does that mean? It means studying how the so-called advanced races can, quote unquote, uh, uplift and help with the development of the back so-called quote unquote i'm doing a lot of quotes here to make sure that i'm not endorsing any of this in fact it's not your words yeah race development yeah 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 race development of the backwards undeveloped people and and by undeveloped people during this period it could be the filipinos and koreas but also african-americans and native americans uh within the united states and um these academics some of them are political scientists some of them are sociologists some of them are uh people who, who study political science are very enthusiastically making comparisons between Korea and the Philippines to not necessarily focus on the lives of Filipinos and Koreans, but to really think about the capacity of the Japanese and American, white Americans, to do this work that they think is really unprecedented. And that's why they think that their iteration of imperialism is truly progressive. So unlike the imperialism of let's say early 19th century or mid 19th century, by late 19th century, early 20th century, the progressive era, these people are convinced that they are doing something. And, and there's a religious dimension here almost always. A lot of these uh, academics are also religious. They, they, they do believe in, 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 in manifest destiny as well as social gospel. So they are in partnership with a lot of missionaries who uh, are also seen as experts of places like Korea. Uh, so there's, there, there's this interesting uh, convergence between progressive as an imperialism, even though from the perspective of Filipinos and Koreans, obviously all imperialism is bad, progressive or unprogressive. But this is what makes this particular period, I think, uh, more interesting than for the earlier period. And this is exactly why, and as I signal in the title of the book, empire is more alluring during this period to a lot of people than it had been before uh, uh, because of uh, all these progressive measures that are taking place. Yeah, the social gospel in empire. I mean, it's a real, it's, it makes a lot of sense. 
And I was thinking about Woodrow Wilson here as well, because, of course, we know that Wilson makes the call for global self-determination of all peoples. And yet he doesn't support self-determination for uh, Asians, really. He doesn't support Asian anti-imperialists. We know from books, uh, you know, the Wilsonian moment that, you know, right. there's this, you know, this, this sort of common toxin, but there's not really um, a, a follow through on that. So why in your book do you say that's the case, that Wilson doesn't follow through on Asian anti-imperialism? Yeah, so I'm building on um, Erzman and Ellis's book uh, with the Wilsonian moment, uh, as well as a couple of books that are in Asian history uh, to reassess how Wilson thinks about Wilson as well as his group of advisors, uh, uh, including Walter Lippmann, the really famous one, who is a big progressive era uh, figure, uh, why they think about it. And I actually focus on, in particular, Wilson's uh, understanding of the term self-government, uh, which, of course, has relationship with self-determination. Um, because as those of us who who have who have read a lot of books in the progressive era know, Wilson's an academic, right? He he before he was a president, he was an academic. He thinks a lot about uh, uh, ideas about government, and if you look at his writings about self-government, he gives these long definitions. But basically, what he says is that listen, self-government is not a God-given right per se. You have to earn it, and you need a lot of practice. And the United States is doing in the Philippines what um, he thinks is the best thing for the rest of the world, which is giving tutelage to a group of nine people, um, a training in self-government. And he believes that self ability to self-govern is a precondition to to be able to claim your right to self-determination so in other words sure um you know everybody in some ways well not some way everybody wants to self-determine their future especially if they're colonized people he understands that but not everybody has the capacity or the right to do self to you know self-determine their futures precisely because he doesn't think that self-government is something that everybody has uh has, has, is a skill that he has developed. And what's really interesting is that um, this is something that resonates really well with uh, Walter Lippmann, as well as other people who are helping him configure the post-war World War I order. And um, if you look at the, really the writings of um, Walter Lippmann and a couple other people, when they are thinking about the post-World War I order, they're not really thinking about uh, letting all the colonized people, uh, including in Asia, do whatever they want. They're very, they're precise about their vision and they, they write it down. They say, okay, when we say we want the interests of the self, uh, the interests of the colonized represented, what we really mean is that we want them to be well protected by I don't know, an imperial power that would provide them with welfare, women's rights, protecting protection of children, uh, open door policy, uh, right to vote in certain ways. Um, but we're not actually interested in letting them determine their futures. Uh, and that's a key phrase, um, I, the, the interest of the um, colonized, that, that's a really important phrase that, 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 that is kind of everywhere if you start looking at these documents. And I'll say one more thing about this interesting uh, moment, Wilsonian moment, is that the Republicans 
are relentless in their attack uh, of Wilson by sometimes holding on to Wilson's own definition of self-government and calling him basically a fraud who, who has a long record of being a person who was just as imperialistic as the Republicans, but wants to project his image as somebody different. And William Howard Taft, who was once upon a time a colonial governor of the Philippines, has this incredibly long diatribe in Congress, in, in front of a congressional committee, saying that Woodrow Wilson is not going to do anything different from the Republicans. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, just months before he dies, uh, uh, goes after Woodrow Wilson by saying, listen, Wilson says self-determination, there's self-determination that look at his record in Latin America. You know, he, he was just as imperialistic, if not even more imperialistic than I was or, or my, my, you know, success, my successor, really Howard Taft was. Uh, and he, so he points to, you know, uh, U.S. military excursion into Mexico, uh, the Pershing expedition, among other things, uh, U.S. invasion of Haiti. So this is an interesting time to also think about Wilson, not just in, in conversation with the Asian nationalists, as well as uh, his, his, his circle of advisors, but also the Republicans, because in a lot of ways, the Republicans are uh, calling him out on, on his hypocrisy. And at the same time, the Republicans are admitting that they themselves are true imperialists. They're not pretending to be people who are interested in self-determination. So I think it's an interesting moment that reveals a lot about progressive imperialism. It's a great story because who's, it's like, who's the better, you know, who's the more kinder, more gentle imperialist? That's kind of what it is. And that's and right. I'm, you know, Wilson, of course, said that he was going to teach Mexicans who to vote for or how to, you know, be be better uh, Democrats. Um, it, it's it's a fascinating point. And I think it gets to the point of your the title of your book, The Allure of Empire, rather than the Wilsonian moment. Actually, the allure of empire persists throughout this period, but it changed. It changes. Right. The idea of the Japanese empire in American minds changes in the 1920s. How does it change? Is it is it just around immigration or is it also about news from uh, from the Far East about violence and uh, or is it both of those things combined? It's both of those combined. And and one of the most surprising stories uh, that I, I, I discovered uh, when I was researching this book is the convergence between the anti-immigration movement in the United States and the, uh, the anti-Japanese colonial anti-colonial movement in Korea, uh, as well as in the in the United States. So I mentioned earlier that the gentleman's agreement had been had been in place in part to frustrate the demands of the anti-Japanese immigration activists. And by great coincidence, one of the people who were uh, very interested in this issue, but had quite frankly, too preoccupied with other things such as, and he's a true progressive, V.S. McClatchy. Uh, he is an heir to a lot of land from his father, but also this newspaper chain, but also he, he was he was very, very uh, passionate about conservation, uh, rent, land reclamation. So he's interested in land rights. And he goes to uh, tour Asia. He goes to, if, if I remember correctly, I think he goes to Japan, Korea, and the Philippines. He might have also stopped by China right after World War One. And coincidentally, he passes through Korea during the March 1st movement, March 1st anti-colonial movement, and sees how Japan's 
colonial police and the military police is violently uh, uh, suppressing the colonial protesters. And he is ex interested in this story, not because, not primarily because he's interested in Korea, but he realizes that this will be the main way to challenge this long established allure of Japanese empire that uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, and other uh, and other the academics I've talked about earlier, the missionaries have been have been uh, propagating in the United States. So when he returns, and this is where power really matters and, and access to what resources matter. He's a, he's not just a journalist. He he owns a ton of newspaper companies. He also is personal friends with a lot of people in Congress. So he's able to start feeding uh, a, a, what I would consider a rhetorical weapon by saying that, okay, the, the anti-immigration movement needs to change its strategy to really uh, uh, meet its goal of Japanese exclusion. And it's by appropriating this news of Japanese colonial violence to say, listen, Denim's agreement is in place precisely because Japan is supposed to be a progressive power that deserves American respect. But I just saw in Korea that it's actually not as progressive as a lot of people think it is. And if Japan is not a progressive empire, why should we entrust them to honor their agreement to not send their um, immigrants to the United States? And he also says, and this is this classic scaremongering tactic, in the election, and he does this a lot in the in the election ahead of election of 1920. He says that if the United States doesn't stop Japanese immigration, Japanese immigrants are going to turn the American West into their colony, uh, just as they have done in places like Korea. And he expresses fear by saying that Japanese immigrants are completely different from the Chinese or the Indians who haven't already been excluded. They're even more dangerous precisely because not they're not racially inferior. They're actually more dangerous because they have the capacity to, uh, as I said earlier, he has a lot of interest in land, buy land, turn land into their own and build basically a block, political block, economic block. Uh, they, they have people in, in, in Washington, DC that they can call to represent their interests. So what he does is that he, um, takes advantage of this immediate post-World War I moment when already a lot of people are questioning this idea of, of, of Japan as a progressive empire to say uh, to a lot of people in Congress, and probably the most important is um, Albert Johnson, who is the architect of Johnson Redact 19, Immigrants 1924, that here is how you say to your colleagues in Congress that Japanese immigration should be restricted. So that's how um, the ideas about Japan as a progressive empire, ideas about Japan as a partner begins to shift after World War I. Uh, and this, this, this shift is really uh, uh, exacerbated by the fact that anti-imperialists, I'm sorry, anti-immigration uh, activists are collaborating actually with uh, anti-colonial activists uh, in the United States, most notably Syngman Rhee, uh, uh, who is, who is uh, if you know anything about Korean history, would become the first president of South Korea. But before that, he was a longtime anti-Japanese colonial activist, anti-colonial activist in the United States. 
uh, to forge an unlikely alliance between Koreans and white supremacists. And that's, that's the story I tell uh, to talk about how it, it was possible for Congress to legislate against Japanese immigration in 1924. And this is part is really important, against the wishes of the White House. The, the U.S. the U.S. Uh, the president at the time, um, actually it's both Harding and Coolidge, um, are opposed to this idea. All, a lot of the State Department employees, high-ranking employees, are also opposed to this idea of abrogating the gentleman's agreement. But Congress actually gets its victory because the, the because the legislators are far more powerful than the people in the White House. Yeah, it's remarkable that that because that's not it's the opposite story, really, in the the first two decades of the 20th century. It's the the White House acting one way and and bringing along the legislature. And then it's the opposite, the legislature sort of bringing along the executive branch. How did um, how did Japan and you talk about the Institute for uh, sorry, the Institute of Pacific Relations. How did Japan and the IPR attempt to improve relations after 1924 and after that Immigration Act that excluded the Japanese along the same lines as the Chinese? I mean, how does how does that play out until we get to 1931 and the invasion of Manchuria? Yeah, so um, during the economically prosperous jazz age, there are ways in which that even though uh, even though Japan, Japanese government, Japanese people are greatly insulted and angry, and rightfully so, uh, by by the Immigration Act of 1924. There are still genuine efforts on both sides of the Pacific, in Japan, in the United States, but also in Korea, China, Philippines, uh, to really think about, okay, how do we, and collective we, um, and I would actually also, I should also add Australia and New Zealand there as well. The, the, the Pacific Rim countries maintain peace, even though that there is, ex, there, there exists all these anti-Asian -immig immigration laws. And these elites, and most of them, are, and I call them elites because most of them are very highly educated. Uh, and a lot of the Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and Filipino members of the Institute of Pacific Relations are American educated and, and therefore also have a lot of connections in the U.S. They think that they can find an alternative solution to these problems, the geopolitical immigration problems in the Pacific. And one of the things that they think about is like, okay, uh, Japan is not going to challenge the existence of immigration laws in, in the United States, Canada, uh, Australia, but the United States uh, you know, elites are going to assist Japan to solve a problem that is both national problem and a national problem, which is that they say Japan, because of economic prosperity in an interesting way, has this problem of overpopulation. Uh, the, the economy is good, people are doing well, so they have more children, people. And they say Japan just can is just too small to feed and support this growing population. And they need to send someone, they need to send these, they call, they keep on using the term surplus population somewhere. And the Japanese government uh, in the aftermath of 1924 Immigration Act, they, 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 they figure out ways to send some of them to, to Brazil. Uh, some of them go to um, Manchuria. But at least in the 1920s, the, the most attractive solution 
for these elites is the idea of land development. This is actually where progressive era faith and um, ideas, progressive faith and uh, techno- techno- te- technocrat run uh, world is really important because they think that they have enough technology and knowledge to improve the quality of agricultural agricultural techniques as well as uh, arable soil to feed everybody without finding outlets for these people. So there's a tremendous amount of money, most of which comes from the Rockefeller Foundation, to say, we understand that U.S.-Japan relations is not ideal after 1924. So, uh, but instead of challenging uh, the U.S. government to reopen immigration to Japan, Japanese, Japanese people, why don't we help Japan on the other side? And, and as well as Korea, Philippines, and China too, but really focuses on Japan during the 1920s to help them improve their, uh, their, their way of life. And, and then I, I basically suggest in the book that this is, this is actually um, uh, a predecessor of what would later become during the Cold War development projects, um, big scale, top-down social engineering projects that's gonna uh, try to um, create a revolution of a different kind. What we we get to know about the Green Revolution later on um, to feed the people. And this actually works really well uh, during the 1920s, but with the onset of the Great Depression, uh, everything kind of collapses, uh, and 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 this is when also domestic politics within Japan is important as well, where uh, Japanese liberals and progressives are no longer popular among the people, and they're actually losing grip uh, on their own government. So you have much more aggressive militarists taking power, and they're the ones who are supportive of uh, of of uh, Japanese army's invasion of Manchuria, and then later on Sino-Japanese war. Um, but what I show in the book is that uh, instead of just um, going straight from 1924 to 1941, which is what I think a lot of books uh, have done in the past, let's think about these 1920s, the, 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 the jazz age, the prosperous period before the Great Depression as the last moment where uh, a, lot of, a lot of people on the both sides of the Pacific were invested in developing cultivating this relationship even after exclusion um and i think it's fascinating that it's not just japan but as i said chinese korean and filipino elites are participating in this effort too because they want to also figure out because they themselves are also um trying to benefit from an imperial order so instead of challenging imperialists they want to say okay what do we what what can we get from the imperialists of the United States and the Rockefeller Foundation to help us feed our poor, uh, especially the rural population uh, during this period. Yeah, Chris, in so many ways, you've answered my next question, which was, you know, why does this all matter for today? I think obviously you talk about international development, green development. I mean, we can see the sort of, I suppose, reverberations in a way of the policies that are there. But I still want to give you an opportunity to tell us why your research matters for the contemporary milieu, because you know, that's what this podcast is trying to do, too, in some ways, is to say, look, the Gilded Age is really important. I mean, I think everyone that studies history says that their period is important. But I think, you know, we're saying here, in some ways, this is important for our time as well. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to say explicitly, you know, why it is. Yeah, and I, I'll, 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 I'll narrow it down to three. Uh, uh, three things that, that I think speak to 
some of the things that we've already spoken about. First is this idea of uh, international governments through cooperation. And I don't know how many people pit. I, I mean, I, I, only, I say this because I feel like people don't pay a lot of attention to U.S.-Japan relations uh, they, as much as they, as much as they should, as they should, as they try to understand U.S.-China relations, so I think everybody is familiar with the tensions between China and the United States right now. But I think people are less familiar with the ways in which the Japan and South Korea are really important partners of the United States in in this in this battle. Um, and I would actually even argue that I don't think that Japan and South Korea, at least at this current moment in 2023, are in the middle. They're, they've actually sided with the United States. And what I show is that there is this long-lasting idea about a select, not all Asians, but select countries and select uh, groups of people in Asia, even though they're not white, are deemed suitable partners of U.S. global expansion and maintenance of U.S. global supremacy. And I'm using the term global now, but back in the days, it was more trans-Pacific collaboration. But Chris, that's apparent everywhere now too, isn't it? I mean, if you think about Korean cultural diplomacy right now, if you think Mm -hmm. about Mm K-pop, the food diplomacy, I mean, I'd love to do do a podcast on Korean food diplomacy, but you know, I mean, the Korean culture has now gotten to a stage where it was probably unfathomable to most Americans 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and and, and I'm glad that you bring that up because it's not just a one-way, uh, uh, um, it's not a one-way street in this relationship. The Korean, and I'll use South Korean uh, culture and government as an example. Um, to be sure, there is a there there is a sizable population in South Korea who are uh, skeptical of U.S. imperial uh, overtures. I mean, including the U.S. military, but there is a sizable population and a lot of people in the, in the government and the entertainment industry and businesses who are, are who are, would much rather take advantage of the 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 the, the um, hierarchical relationship that already exists, right? So. Um, K-pop, K K food, all these things are able to um, uh, reach a global arena in part because uh, Korea, South Korean government, I mean, really has taken the taken advantage of a lot of the networks and infrastructure that uh, the U.S.-led order has established for a long time. And what I my my book tries to show is that there are, there are a lot of non-white elite i mean i keep on talking about the elites because i i I don't want to say that it's all the asians who do this who are rather than um trying to think about like okay what is our own way of doing things or what is the anti-imperial way of doing things let's try to secure our self-interest economic self-interest geopolitical self-interest uh within the existing order and i think that's that's one really important uh, uh thing that continues from the progressive era to now the second one that i that i'll which is more domestic united states that i will i want to talk about is that right now um there's no question that there is uh, a wave of anti-Asian racism that, but but it also very much focuses on, on China. Uh, now, it is true that some people who are racist do not discriminate among the different races. But if you look at some of the most conservative 
politicians in the South where I live in, um, they're very, very, very conscious. They're self-conscious about not lumping China with Japan or Korea. Um, I won't name names, but I, you can look them up. But for example, why are some of the really anti-Black and anti-Chinese uh, uh, politicians all of a sudden taking trips to Japan and South Korea and, and, and now Taiwan? to say, well, these are countries that are our allies, but when they come to the United, come back to the United States, they're the ones who are you know, stoking the flame, you know, fear of, of, of Asians um, taking over the country, they're having influence on in our education and our politics. And the coexistence of anti-Asian racism that is often directed to immigrants and, uh, the, and, and this, this longing or maybe this desire or this commitment to have an Asian partner uh, in the Trans-Pacific, I think is really strong. Uh, so in the progressive era, there's no question that you know, anti-immigration movement existed and they were victorious at times. But just as important is the, 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 is the continued commitment of a lot of American politicians, including the ones who are notorious racists. Uh, in, in championing Japan as their as their partner, and sometimes championing Korea as a as a country that is worthy of U.S. support, even though they are anti-black or anti-Chinese or anti-Japanese, and and it's I think it's important to not lose sight of of the other side when we talk about anti-Asian racism in the United States, because a lot of these politicians are very good at maintaining that. Uh, semblance of their statementship by um, showing how they are committed to they're not I mean in other words this it's the simple way to think is that they, they can easily say I'm not racist because well you know I actually do support Japan I do support Taiwan I do support South Korea I do support right. Philippines it's just that I don't like you know Asian immigrants or China the third part I want to say uh, which is about which is a little less which is actually feeding from the second one is that and uh there is this assumption that um, the that the racism works uh, only as a white over non-white, um, and living in twenty twenty three, of course, like we understand. I mean, a lot of times racism is white supremacy. Uh, that I mean, rather that's that's the logic of race. That's 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 what racism is. But there are also other forms of racism too, and this is what I show as progressive form of racism, or or even say liberal forms of racism, where uh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that a white supremacist who hates all white, all non-white people, um, is worse than some of these other races. But there, there, there are other kinds of races who, let's say, are very much willing to have. Uh, sophisticated ways of thinking about race and always have uh, ways of saying that, well, you know, I'm, the reason why I hate certain, you know, X country or X group of people is not because they're not white, it's because they're quote unquote like uncivilized or whatever. So there is this ways in which rationalizing racism that it goes beyond the color line. And I'll give a very specific example. So during the progressive era, a lot of people who are anti-black, um, would say that they're not actually as racist as some of the people in the South because they were uh, um, they they were interested in Japan, Japanese culture. They had good relations with Japan. So how could we not be racist if I'm if I like to? 
and nowadays there are also these these ideas and, and I'm glad that you brought up K-pop. There are a lot of people who like K-pop who are, I think, um, not necessarily anti-racist or even cosmopolitan, but they think that they're not as racist because they have latched onto something non-white, um, but nevertheless deeply invested in uh, a particular form of racism. And and I'll leave with the final final note on this because you know I'm Asian American and this is not just about what white Americans do to minorities, but also how non-white people in the United States also sometimes, unfortunately, um, adopt these forms of racism as their own. And we see this a lot in in, in Asian Americans who really buy into model minority myth. Uh, the Asian Americans who. Um, unfortunately, uh, have adopted anti-black racism, but also say that they they are against anti-Asian racism, which is kind of you know you know makes in some ways doesn't make any sense, but in their minds it makes sense. Uh, and, and so there is this question about how the color line does help us understand racism a lot of times, but there are also other times where you need to go beyond the color line paradigm to understand race and actually. And this is not to say that we should discard the other one. We should use both the color line paradigm as well as what we might consider like the liberal, progressive, imperial form of racism uh, paradigm to understand the nuances of how races work. Well, maybe we just say this, that the allure of empire is still there. I think that's what makes your book yeah. so gripping is that, you know, this is a book that talks about the color line, as you say, but also dispels the fact that that is the only factor in, in how the world has organized itself and certainly how the, you know, the trans-Pacific world has organized itself. Honestly, this is for a first book, uh, it, it, it shows such a degree of maturity and intellect. Uh, I just want to congratulate you, Chris, on a fantastic debut, you. so to speak, uh, monograph. It's, it's really a wonderful thing. And I would encourage everyone that listens to the show to go out and, and get it because it really is defining the trans-Pacific world uh, in, in a very complex and nuanced way, much to our benefit. Thanks so much for joining me, Chris. Thank you so much, Mike. And, and I, I appreciate your uh, uh, great questions and, and reading my book so closely. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.